Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Welcome to the 500th episode of the Long Form Podcast. <laughs> I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Aaron, I thought you said we weren't going to make a big deal about a 500. <laughs> it was a fake out. I wanted to get you back on your heels. It's not only the 500th episode. This month marks 10 years of the Long Form Podcast. Hey-o. Any feelings? Any uh, Any reactions? You guys, like always, I have no feelings of any kind. Feelings free over here. Max, <laughs> numb to it all. I just want to send a big thank you out to like everyone who's been a part of the show over the years, all of the guests, everyone who's worked on this show. We've had many editors, many interns. It's not just the three people who are presently on the microphone here, but dozens of people who've helped us make this show, whether they were guests, collaborators, Thank you to everyone. And of course, the biggest, biggest thank you to all the listeners. 10 years. It's a lot of listening. Yeah. I wonder how many listeners we have that have made it all 10 years from the very beginning. A lot of people have told me that they've listened to every episode. And I always want to do like a quiz then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel, I guess I have one feeling, also gratitude for all of those people, including the listeners who um, write with constructive criticism. I would just like to shout those people out too, because they validate my fears. And so it's nice when those people write and tell us how we could be doing a better job. I don't think those emails go to my inbox anymore because I haven't gotten uh, constructive or non-constructive criticism since like 2017. <laughs> Listeners, for a 10-year anniversary gift, send Aaron an email. AaronLammer at gmail.com. And uh, Aaron, who is on the show this week? This week, I talked to Caitlin Dickerson. You may have seen her article in the Atlantic about family separation uh, under the Trump administration. It's an incredible story. It's uh, a continuation of reporting that she's been doing about immigration previously at the New York Times and before that at NPR. It's one of the first stories that I've ever read that really explains how policy gets made at the Washington level and then follows that policy to where it affects people's lives at the border. Really interesting discussion, very, very complex reporting task that I think she really has built the skills to do over time. Very, very glad that you got to talk to her. Uh, thanks to Vox, our partners with whom we make this show. And now here's Aaron with Caitlin Dickerson. Hello. Welcome, Caitlin. Hi. Thank you. Very nice getting to talk to you. You have a pretty new story out in The Atlantic 
I have to make a confession, actually, which is that I'm 15 minutes late to this interview. And the reason is that I decided I was going to reread the story and massively misgaged how long it would take me to read it. So how many words is this story? I think I saw somewhere that it's like 28,500 or 29,000 words. So I've miscalculated in the same way that you did several times. My editor did the same thing as we were working through it. Every time we passed it back and forth, we said, okay, I'll get this to you tomorrow. And then like a week would pass and one of us would have to send an email saying, I'm so sorry. Just wasn't done yet. For people listening, tell me what the story is and sort of the journey it took from it coming to you to getting published. I know that's a broad question, but we can dig into that progressively. So to start, this is the story of family separations, more than 5,000 families that were separated while Donald Trump was president. I was covering immigration for the New York Times when this took place. For the first year and a half, it really wasn't being openly talked about by the administration. And so there was a fair amount to figure out there in terms of why this was kind of kept secret or or denied for as long as it was. And then you had zero tolerance, this policy that was announced in the summer of 2018 that made it all public, when you had far, far more separations that took place. And it's really the anatomy of family separations, you know, who, when, where, why, how. How did you think about structuring the story? And what were the like major strands that you felt like you needed to weave together to tell that story? There are a lot. So let's see if I can remember all of them. My editor, Scott Stossel, and I talked a lot about structure as I was reporting because the amount of material that I had was just massive and we wanted to get it all in. And, you know, in trying to figure out how to do that, we, of course, talked about a more conventional approach, which might have involved close interviews with one or two families whose stories you'd weave in and out throughout the piece, you know, going back and forth between Washington and one family's experience. And we decided not to do that for a few reasons. One is that interviewing separated families is really hard. I mean, I, for years, have been asking people to sit down and tell me about the most difficult things they've ever experienced. That's kind of the life of a reporter. But Interviewing separated families, I've found, is is just on a whole other scale of kind of pain and trauma. I've watched people have really intense PTSD flashbacks right in front of me. And I never wanted to risk asking a family to open up in that way if I didn't know I was going to be able to use all that material. You know, the worst thing that you can do is waste somebody's time in a way that that causes them pain. I was also really cognizant of the fact that the media and the media coverage of family separation is part of the story. And I found during the separations and also in my more recent reporting, a lot of the people responsible told me they felt that reporters had exaggerated their coverage of family separations, that they cherry picked the worst cases to make it seem worse than it actually was. And of course, that isn't true. But I didn't want to write a story that would be vulnerable to that kind of accusation. You know, Caitlin just picked the worst possible story that's not reflective of the whole. And then I think there was kind of just a time and space consideration, and there was just so much material about the bureaucracy and about the people who are responsible for this that you had to kind of throw structural conventions out the window and just go with, for the most part, chronology in order to get it all in and have it make sense to a reader. 
returning to the story, I was struck on the second time reading that really like the bulk of the story is mostly located within Washington bureaucracy, which is not a place like if I was like setting a movie, I would be like, oh yeah, this is fun and entertaining, which is part of the story. But I was struck that the stuff about family separation was stuff I was previously aware of. I remember when this stuff started coming out, the part I was completely unaware of was the story of how that became policy. So when did you pick up the policy strand and where did it start for you? I picked that strand up almost right away because like you, I was really deeply familiar with the stories of separated families. I spent a lot of time with them during 2017 and 18. I also relied on a lot of government sources during that period of time, but it was a subset of people. And, you know, I I hadn't talked to everybody who was in positions of authority, who'd made decisions. And so I started my reporting with them. And right away, all these complicated workplace dynamics, these personal, you know, identity dynamics and political dynamics, you know, these people are Republicans, but what does that mean to them? And how did that definition have to change in order for them to keep their jobs in the Trump administration? And how did that influence the way that they handled this issue and either, you know, eventually pushed for family separations or just kind of stayed quiet and let them happen? All those dynamics started coming up right away in my interviews. And I mean, that was the story, right? That was the story we were trying to tell is, you know, the accountability for family separation was just a a huge question mark when I got started. So you've covered immigration for both The New York Times and now The Atlantic, possibly even before then. I'm not sure what your first uh, immigration writing experience was, but for NPR, NPR, that's right. When this topic is like your beat. Are you expected to cover what's happening at the border and what's happening in Washington? Are those separate arenas or are you involved with both simultaneously while you're, you know, sourcing and and meeting people and thinking of stories? It really depends, you know, who you're working for, who your editor is. Immigration as a beat certainly existed before the Trump administration. But I still had people when Trump was president say to me, like, I didn't even know you could be an immigration reporter. How is that a whole beat? It's kind of this rarefied space. When Trump became president and was obviously really focused on immigration in terms of changing policy, in terms of campaigning and, and media and the way that he talked about it constantly, and then also kind of that within the the four walls of the White House, it really dominated people's lives. And so it became a multidisciplinary beat, at least at the times, where you had our White House reporters, Mike Shear and Julie Davis, who knew a lot about immigration and kind of covered that aspect of it. We had Ron Nixon and then Zolan Kano Young. He came over and covered the beat, was supposed to cover it from Washington. And then I was on the national desk. So theoretically, we're supposed to do everything else. But The benefit of being on a team was that we didn't have very specific mandates and there was actually a lot of freedom to decide whether we wanted to report domestically or or go to Mexico or Central America, as I sometimes did, or, you know, do stories out of Washington, trying to pull back the curtain and help people understand what was actually going on during such a chaotic period. 
There's a really uh, a part I really enjoyed in the story where you kind of describe how a policy filters up from low level staffers to researchers who know a lot about the topic to people above them who progressively know less and less about the topic till it reaches the person who will probably ultimately become the face of the policy who knows almost nothing about the topic and potentially in this story got the job like a couple months earlier, many of these people. I'm curious, like how long did it sort of take you to pick up on that as the structure? And when the decisions are not actually being made by the people who are signing, how do you approach that as a reporter? So, right, I wasn't expecting to write a case for the bureaucracy, and I kind of did. You know, it gets such a bad rap, but I learned again, I want to say right away, that these dynamics were at play because I started interviewing people who would say to me, you know, you can talk to the secretary, but they're really not going to know much about what they're talking about. I mean, Kirsten Nielsen was kind of an exception to that in that she was known for and and in fact alienated her colleagues for kind of obsessing over the details and, and getting overly mired in them at times. But advisors to her, you know, advisors in the White House, people who'd been working in immigration enforcement for years helped me understand that a big part of how zero tolerance came to be is that the people who were making decisions didn't actually fully understand you know, the implications of what they were doing, which of course doesn't absolve them of responsibility in any way. I think it implicates them in a way even further. And you know, this structure, it's also, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You have cabinet secretaries who have these huge portfolios there's no way that they could get mired in, you know, what's happening on the border in El Paso if they're also responsible for FEMA and TSA and there's a hurricane coming and, you know, working on a cybersecurity initiative. So it makes sense that principals get to make decisions based on briefings that come from successive layers of expertise below them. And, you know, we wanted to get into that both to help people understand how zero tolerance came to be, but also because it's it influences every type of policymaking. And so, it seemed like a service to help readers understand that. It's interesting how this, which may be one of the worst policies of the modern era, is sort of a test case for like what checks and balances are within a system that would otherwise stop it. And the time that it seems the closest to being stopped are people who are sort of non-ideologically just saying this is impossible there's no way this can happen, much less it should happen. And it sort of made me think about the checks and balances of like people coming in with ideas that are unrealistic and what the process, not of, uh, of deciding what are good policies, but even our, like what can be done is out there. Right. We talk about checks and balances referring to tension between the different branches of government. But there's also this huge tension within you know, the executive branch between the political appointees who sit at the top of federal agencies and then the much larger, ostensibly apolitical bureaucracy below them, people who've served under presidents, Democrat and Republican, who are subject matter experts and who often are the ones pushing the brakes when it comes to policy change, right? That was something that Stephen Miller, who's, of course, Trump's chief immigration advisor, and a bunch of his friends and colleagues who are like-minded 
came into the White House really cognizant of, and they were completely uninterested in letting anybody slow them down and sort of assumed at a baseline that any concerns that people raised were were bad faith concerns, you know, just from secret liberals who were trying to stop them from doing what they wanted to do. In some cases, that was true. But in a lot of cases, it was people who were just saying, no, you know, based on my expertise, this actually isn't possible. There's some of this in, I'm blanking on the name, but uh, Michael Lewis wrote sort of a short book about the turnover of civil servants during the Trump administration. And both the book and your piece are, I feel like, sort of defenses of the apolitical bureaucracy, or in this case, more cautionary tales of what happens without an apolitical bureaucracy in place. Like thinking about this, like as a reporter, what is the voice of the apolitical bureaucracy and how does the apolitical bureaucracy advocate for itself in the face of extremely political pushback? I think that this story is both a case for the apolitical bureaucracy and also an opportunity to point out to them or or to voters who, who may not understand their role in our society that being sort of too apolitical or, or feeling too passive or feeling too kind of helpless in the face of, you know, changing political winds, I think also gave rise to this policy. You know, to answer your question, the apolitical bureaucracy is is huge and often conflicted. You know, they're kind of like any other disgruntled workforce who rolls their eyes every time an administration changes and says, you know, I've got new people and coming in and they think they know what they're talking about and they don't. But they also have a clarity, you know, about what works, about what unintended consequences can come from, you know, really dramatic policy changes, particularly policy changes that impact children and families. I heard from some career border enforcement officials, for example, folks who who really believe in harsh enforcement at the border, that they would never have supported separating families if they'd known that it was under consideration just based on initiatives in the past that had taken place where there was a huge public backlash. I remember hearing about one operation in Las Vegas that the Border Patrol did to try to break up smuggling rings by stopping buses that were traveling throughout the city of Las Vegas and just arresting anybody who couldn't prove they were here legally. They ended up picking up a lot of moms, you know, a lot of like nannies and house cleaners who were supposed to pick up their kids at school that day. And Border Patrol officials were summoned to Congress to testify within days of this happening. There was a huge backlash because you know, it's a subjective business. There's a huge number of people, you know, in the United States or coming into the United States every day who can face these enforcement efforts. And, you know, you don't have to focus them on kids and families, you know, in order to be able to utilize some of these techniques. And so based on that alone, if they had been allowed to participate, they would have objected. But what happened here is that they were, of course, just left out of the room. In Putting together the the scenes that make up the story, you have this blend of incredibly visceral and emotional scenes of kids in detention centers, parents being separated physically, torn away from kids, and then a bunch of pretty banal scenes that I imagine taking place on those kind of like tan facing couches. I don't know. I'm probably like 
imagining a scene from Veep or something as the setting for these scenes. How did you strike that balance? How did you decide how much of each world to live in in the story and what kind of a journey that might take the reader on? I wanted to make sure that the reader kept in their mind throughout the story the families who were impacted again throughout this chronology. You have separations that start in the middle of 2017 and and that go on for many months before the administration acknowledges that they're happening while these debates are playing out, perhaps on like the tan couches that you're envisioning. You know, I didn't want to let the reader forget about the families. And that was a challenge because the individuals who made these decisions forgot about the families. And in these very, very, very long interviews that I did, they forgot about the families. And as they were explaining to me, you know, why they said X or Y in a meeting or or why they didn't, why they stayed quiet, why they felt uncomfortable, why they trusted one person's advice, you know, who said this was going to be fine or didn't, you know, or questioned it. It was just like the families would completely fall away. They would fall out of these conversations. And so I wanted to make sure that couldn't happen to a reader, but I also, I think, sprinkled it in for the most part somewhat gingerly. And maybe there should have been more, actually. I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I've written a lot of stories about separated families, and I think there are a lot more to be done. But it's a very painful story. I mean, I've had a lot of people tell me that they're, you know, having nightmares after reading the story and, you know, are crying after reading the story or dry heaving reading the story. I mean, especially like new parents have a really hard time with the story. It is very painful. You know, I really wanted people to get to the end of the piece. That was my main goal. That was my editor's main goal. And so we tried to strike a balance. I don't know if it was the perfect one. Yeah, I mean... This is a really strange thing to say, but those firsthand accounts of what happened at the detention center are sort of nauseatingly like repetitious. There's a certain like saturation point where it's like, no, like don't don't tell me another one. You know, don't tell me another person's experience that is like similarly horrible. Whereas as you go through the Washington story, you realize like how for many of the people who are at these meetings, this was probably just like one crappy meeting that day full of crappy meetings and everyone can have their own opinion. But for me, it felt like the right mix where you sort of, you visit that emotion early on and then you're detached from it for a long time. And then you sort of come back again at the end. You're right that for a lot of people, it was just a crappy meeting. I mean, that's one of the things you've just reminded me that I heard over and over again. You know, people would say things in defense of themselves and not realize that it made them sound worse, not better. And one of those things was, you know, we were so busy. We had so much going on. You know, you reporters make it seem like we were just sitting around talking about family separations all day. We were doing all kinds of other stuff. And I don't think they realized until they maybe read it in the story you know, how that kind of excuse sounds to a reader. But it was really hard, clearly, for people in Washington to keep the stakes in their minds. In a sense, this became just another policy that was being debated. And, you know, people can have their opinions. But once the decision is made, you know, the others throw up their hands and and let it go forward. And 
there's a quote in the story about red lines and people basically losing sight of their red lines here. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Taking a step back, how did you get into this stuff? What led you to journalism and what made you want to do this with with your career? So I got into journalism, I think like a lot of people, I thought that I would go to law school or I thought that I would work in academia. And But I graduated from college in 2011. So that was a time when everybody was saying, do not become an attorney. It's, you know, there's no jobs out there kind of a thing. And I was never really all that passionate about it, but I had to read a lot of news, you know, in my, as part of my college curriculum, I studied international studies at Cal State Long Beach and we had to subscribe to the times and the economist and you know, spent a lot of our classes just talking about the news. And I became obsessed with the news at that point and realized that it was far more interesting, you know, to think about writing and think about storytelling than, analyzing it through some academic lens. And so at the end of college, I decided that I wanted to get into journalism, but I had no experience. And so I started applying for internships and was rejected for a ton of them until I finally got through at NPR in kind of a weird way. Like my first internship at NPR actually wasn't even in news, but then I managed to somehow squirm into the the newsroom. But as soon as I got to NPR, I just kind of knew um, I was totally intoxicated by the work there and, and the mission of journalism and, and never looked back. What were the first few things you worked on and, and, and what was it like starting from sort of an audio first perspective? So my very first job at NPR was as an intern in the development department and fundraising. And I took it because I was so desperate and no other news organization would take me. At the time, they were doing something called Intern Edition, where like all the interns got to make their own news magazine. And I met a bunch of producers while I was working on my story there. I remember one time Guy Raz said, if you want to come in and shadow Weekend Edition, which he was hosting at the time, just come on by. And so I said, great. And, you know, showed up on a Saturday, watched them do the show, thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And, you know, he said to me at the end, if you ever want to come back, you're welcome to. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. And so I I think I went every weekend for the rest of my internship at NPR. Um, I was that nerdy. And then I got a second job or second internship 
because I was around so much that people kind of knew me to help on the 2012 election as an intern on the politics desk. A lot of transcribing tape, a lot of listening to interviews of people like Mara Liason and Peter Overby and Tamara Keith. And then I did the whole temp producer thing, which you've probably heard all about. Worked overnight on Morning Edition as a production assistant and the other shows and then then became a full-time production assistant and then got this apprenticeship in investigative reporting and then two kind of had another epiphany moment where I realized, oh, this is like what I should be doing. This is what I really want to be doing. And so I just stuck with reporting. But yes, it was it was audio all five years. Mm. And what was it like making the transition into print when you eventually did? It was very scary. I don't recommend learning how to write newspaper articles at the New York Times. I had not <laughs> written a newspaper article before I got to the Times, but I loved their work and really wanted to learn how to do it. I had been doing investigative reporting, so I, I was really enamored with just the depth that they were able to get into when you have the benefit of print and you have you know, the page and you can include graphics and you can write, you know, sidebars and uh, just be a lot more, I mean, I don't want to say more ambitious because obviously, you know, I love audio and I think there's so much you can convey in audio that you can't in print, but likewise, you can just get a lot more detail into a print story because as you know, you have to be really efficient when your audience is just listening to you and is very easily bored. So it was intimidating. I don't, I don't know of anybody else who had done that before me. So that was kind of part of the experience too. But thankfully, I figured it out on the fly. And were you assigned immigration or did you choose immigration as a beat? I was sort of assigned immigration in that, you know, when the Times recruited me, I think they didn't totally know what to do with me. I remember that I met with a bunch of different desks and I had sort of said, if given the choice, I would cover immigration because it was just something that I knew a lot about. Having studied international relations, I had a bunch of classes about immigration history that I thought were fascinating. And then I had just gravitated toward it at NPR as a producer. You know, I would pitch segments about immigration and had done some of my own stories there as well about immigration. So I knew about it and proposed it. And so my first job at the Times was technically on this like race team. It was part of the national desk. It was kind of this interesting space that was supposed to generate feature stories. And mine were going to be mostly about immigration. But then, you know, this is the summer of 2016 when most people assume that Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president. And so when Donald Trump was elected, instead, it became clear that they needed a really beefy immigration reporting team. And so I got to join it. Yeah, there's a point in the story where I don't remember who was saying this, but someone was basically like, don't do any immigration stuff if you want your career to succeed. It's an intractable problem that just makes everyone who touches it look bad. So uh, that's the political take on choosing immigration. From a journalistic perspective, where has the beat led you and what were sort of like the evolutions of your thinking about sort of what the story was over time. That can also be true of immigration reporting. <laughs> Unfortunately, I always think back on this moment at the times, kind of at the height of chaos during the Trump administration. It might have been during the travel ban days and it's like walking to, you know, get a glass of water and ran into one of my favorite researchers there. And she said to me, 
man, Caitlin, who would have thought this backwater beat would become so <laughs> important? And I'm like, Doris, you're not supposed to say that to me. But she was being candid. And immigration coverage, it can get marginalized for all kinds of reasons that your listeners have heard about. I mean, it has to do with marginalized communities. It has to do primarily with people of color. I think that the line that gets drawn around immigration coverage, you know, which a lot of times is you're just talking about actually a business story or an education story or a national security story. But when you call it an immigration story, it feels to people like it is this other thing about these other people who aren't us, even though, you know, I think it's a quarter of children in the United States have at least one parent who's an immigrant. And, you know, if you look around your office, you've got all kinds of people who are dealing with the immigration system in the United States. It's everywhere, but it ends up being sidelined. And so, well, for one thing, I've, I've always done stories that aren't about immigration. I've always done like a mix of things that just comes with the job when you're on the national desk at the Times, because you can think you're an immigration reporter, but then there's a mass shooting or there's a hurricane and then you cover that. But I continue to come back to the story because it speaks to why I became a journalist, because I just think, you know, there's a lot that the public would really benefit from knowing on this issue. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And so I've stuck with it for that reason, because once you know about it, you're in a better position to help other people know about it. But yes, I've had many conversations with editors encouraging even encouraging enthusiastically and, you know, even maybe something even more <laughs> intense than that. You know, people have tried to convince me to cover other things. And sometimes there's sort of this subtext of, you know, you're doing so well, we want to give you a better beat. <laughs> and I'm just saying, no thanks. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting to think of it not as a backwater, but as a secondary subject, because it, if you look at like the course of American history or really the history of any country, you know, you look at like a newspaper from the 1800s, immigration is a major topic then. There's no point in American history where immigration was an irrelevant topic that people didn't care about. But it's it's a difficult topic because it starts asking questions that I don't really like have answers for, like what are our obligations to people who live in different countries and how do those compare to the obligations of people who live in America? It's a fascinating question that unlike many things in modern life, I don't really have like a coherent argument about. I know that what happened in this story is wrong, but I don't have a strong idea of what right is. If we don't even agree you know, on the very simple question of what is the point of our immigration system? Is the point of our immigration system to enrich our economy? Is it to make our country more diverse? Is it to help people who need it? That's part of that intractability and, you know, conflict that, as you pointed out, is ever present, you know, has always been around in the United States. You know, there's also a challenge in that a lot of debate around immigration is is really euphemistic. Someone can say that you're having a conversation about jobs, but you're really having a conversation about race. Someone can say you're having a conversation about wages for, you know, undocumented workers, but you're really having a conversation about wages for blue-collar, American-born workers. It's, at its worst, 
the idea of immigration can be kind of a dog whistle, a way of scaring people who are concerned about, you know, the great replacement theory, things like that. And then there are, of course, very legitimate concerns and questions around national security and around kind of, I think, what you're getting to, which is what's logical, what's fair. And, you know, it's such an emotional debate, and it always has been, that those answers can be really hard to get to. So again, that's kind of why I've stuck with it, because I feel like I understand it well enough to try to help us get to a better place, I hope. When you hear someone say, and people say this multiple times through the story, not necessarily about your reporting, but about reporting on the zero tolerance policies, oh, they exaggerated it, or it's not as severe as the media makes it out to be. How do you gauge that in, in your own reporting? Like, it's sort of a, a difficult thing to respond to. Like, what is the proper severity? In retrospect, it seems like it would have been hard to really be exaggerating it. But when you hear about a phenomenon like this and you don't know how widespread it is, how do you sort of zero in on the right levels for reporting on it? In a conversation like that, I, I ask follow-up questions to ask what exactly people feel like they saw or heard that was unrepresentative. And I'm used to having these discussions. People are super critical of the media and often, you know, to our faces. And those are beneficial conversations to have. If your question is, how severe do I go in, in writing this story? How do I figure out the appropriate level of severity? I mean, I tend to stick to first-person accounts. I tend to stick to data. I tend to stick to, you know, information that comes from government sources, information that might be filed in a court case. Very infrequently, slash maybe never, would you see me writing in a story, you know, the U.S. government today did the worst thing that's ever happened. Right. And it's, it, you know, there's, there's no comparison in U.S. history because it's just so bad. I mean, that just doesn't... It's not something that I would write. It wouldn't benefit anybody if I write that. When people talk about the exaggerated narratives or what they believe to be exaggerated, they would say reporters focused on anecdotal accounts. You know, what kinds of anecdotal accounts? Say, well, they made it seem like there were a lot of babies and infants. Well, there were a lot of babies and infants. Um, and we have the data to know that that's factually true or you know, they, they made it seem like the Border Patrol agents, you know, ripped children out of parents' arms. They did do that. And parents have been telling us that all along. Children have been telling us that all along. But, you know, I worked really hard to get another perspective on that in this story because, again, I knew it was going to be something that people would push back against. And I, I finally found this woman, Nariz Gonzalez, a Salvadoran consular worker who watched separations play out. And she described them just as families had all along. So I don't think that the media exaggerated family separations. And I think that for the most part, the reporting was really factual. It's just that the facts were really disturbing and not just to Democrats who the Trump administration was used to being criticized by, but also to their own party. Tell me about the FOIA process behind this story and sort of, as you put it together, what pieces of information were the most elusive that you were looking for for the longest? You know, the more that I see come out related to 
family separation in terms of records, the more I feel like I just want to see every email. And emails provide very different information than reports and then data. I mean, they give you opinion. They give you, you know, where where do people sit on this personally, which I think is important in this story in a way that it, it might not always be. So I started filing FOIAs, I'm sure lots of reporters did, about family separation right away in 2017, knowing that I probably wouldn't see any of this for years. I worked on a really targeted search for emails with key terms that weren't too broad. You know, if you had used something like prosecution or family unit, you know, good luck. You would get a huge pile of records if you, you know, if you got anything back at all and, and you'd really have to go digging for what you were looking for. So I tried to use really, really specific search terms. And I worked with, at the time, New York Times lawyers to help tailor them as narrowly as we possibly could. I was really interested in the guidance, you know, any kind of training or implementation detail that was provided to the Border Patrol agents who were supposed to carry that out. I was partly interested in that because, again, I kept hearing from the administration that the separations were humane, that there was good communication. And I was looking for any evidence of that. You know, I was looking for records that spoke to who knew what when, because there was a lot of disagreement at the time about that. It turned out ultimately that, you know, HHS, the Health and Human Services Department, which is one of the biggest and most important agencies involved, was kept in the dark prior to the implementation of zero tolerance. And two inspectors general had found that, had come to that conclusion, but others were calling it into question. And so I wanted to try to get to the answer there. I requested records that were basically complaints filed by separated parents in the DHS detention system, just to kind of, it's a way of getting their voice, right? Like, what did they say about what happened and how old was their child and what do they know? I mean, a lot of these complaints were filed when parents still didn't know where their kids were. So it was a number of wide-ranging but very intentional requests because I knew that these FOIAs were going to become really important and I didn't want them to get lost then I did. I wanted to make sure that I actually heard back at some point, and, and we ultimately had to sue to make that happen in a few cases. But you know, I'm really glad that we did because we got a lot of stuff that was really helpful. The reaction most people have to the story is always is there must be an Excel file somewhere with this information on it. Maybe we don't have that Excel file, but someone's got to have this Excel file. At any point, did you think you might find an Excel file? And when I, for people listening, when I talk about an Excel file, uh, it would be a file that paired up uh, parents in detention with their kids and where their kids were so that they could be reunited. I didn't think that I was going to find an Excel file. In fact, I knew I wouldn't because I had so many sources in government who worked on the court-mandated effort to reunify separated families and who were telling me they had no information to go on. And so they were basically having to recreate records from scratch or, you know, dig through documentation about individual parents and children and check, you know, the notes section at the bottom of a, a long you know, question and answer form to look for any evidence of whether they might have crossed the border with somebody else, where that person might be. So I knew an Excel file didn't exist. And why is another question. I think the best answer for that is that anybody who would have 
wanted to create such an Excel file had kind of long been cut out of the conversation by the time zero tolerance was approved, leaving the Health and Human Services Department, which cares for the separated kids out of the conversation, was really significant because it's an agency that doesn't do law enforcement that's made up of a lot of social workers and child welfare people who are typically viewed as impediments to progress by the border enforcement authorities, you know, by DHS and its components. I think that leaving them out of the conversation was intentional. and, And had they been around, this is something that they likely would have raised. But there were also people within, you know, the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Division of DHS who were working on reports because they started to get some of these early complaints of separations that took place in 2017. And they were concluding that parents and children would get lost, that a system to keep track of them needed to be developed. And their recommendations just went completely unaddressed and unheeded so that at the end of the day, you had Kirsten Nielsen, who was the Homeland Security Secretary, making a decision with only the input of the heads of of these DHS components who were pushing really hard for separating families and telling her just kind of generally and vaguely, we've got a system, we've got a process, don't worry about it. I mean, it was part of this false narrative that kind of developed over time that, you know, we've done this before, which was never true. But I think what happened was that these officials wanted to separate families so badly, thought that this was, you know, so key to fixing the country's immigration ills, you know, as as they define them, that they just hoped blindly that it would all work out, which was, of course, not the case. There's a lot of people who are in this story. They're kind of nicely broken out in the Atlantic page uh, layout with little black and white cutouts of these major figures in the case. Now that the story's out, what's the conversation like uh, in the world of DHS and ICE and and these agencies? The story seems like it's made a a pretty significant impact and a lot of people have read it. Most of the people who are named in the story and who, you know, played a significant enough role to be broken out with a kind of biography for readers aren't around anymore, with the exception I think only of Jonathan White. He was the commander in the Health and Human Services Department who was pushing really hard internally to try to prevent separations from happening and then and then worked on the reunification effort. I have heard that people in the government are reading the story and talking about the story. I know that at least one policy office at DHS scheduled a meeting to talk about the story and what it means to be a civil servant. So I've received a lot of messages saying thank you and and we appreciate this. And I hope that it's causing people to think about their roles in, you know, the day-to-day operations of government, maybe think about them a little bit differently. And I have heard from a few government sources that, you know, they think about the passive way in which they might play one teeny tiny role in the implementation of a new policy a little bit differently, you know, that in the past they thought that they really had no control over these things and that, you know, they just had to do their job at the end of the day. And I think, you know, people are questioning that a little bit. Obviously, the government wouldn't work if everybody was on a daily basis guided by their political views and, you know, so much so that they were refusing to do their jobs. I mean, that just wouldn't work. But I think that people are kind of 
reading the story like a splash of cold water and and realizing, okay, well, you know, I can see how this happened, how so many people went along with it. And I want to make sure that I don't do that. Is the story being read in Central America, in the countries where a lot of the people who were victims of child separation either live or lived? And what is kind of the connection between American reporting on immigration and the people who are potentially present or future migrants? I've received a lot of feedback from people who've read the story in Spanish and are really happy that the story was translated into Spanish. I don't know exactly where readers are located. We might have that data. If we, if we do, I'm not aware of it. I think people are, for the most part, saying kind of, thank you for not letting this go in a way. And I think that in Central America, where at the time most most migrants were coming from, people really understand that this is a complicated issue and consistently tell me, by the way, you know, I would have preferred not to come to the United States. Like I would have preferred not to go through this hellish journey if I didn't have to and, you know, move to a new country where I don't speak the language if I didn't have to. And so I think you know, people might be surprised at how much people who've gone through this migration experience or thought about it understand that this isn't an easily answered question for any country, just like you pointed out, but also agree with, you know, a lot of domestic readers and just feeling like, okay, but separating families is, is totally beyond the pale. Well, I think there's this perception that sort of emanates from a lot of these Washington meetings that the decisions that come out of the bureaucracy are going to directly impact someone in Honduras or uh, Guatemala, and they're going to somehow make the decision whether to start walking towards the border based on what gets decided at that meeting. And I'm curious how you think about the actual sort of connection between American policy and the beliefs uh, that are in the mind of someone who's going to make this perilous journey. So there's a lot of research on deterrence strategies, which is why it's kind of bewildering sometimes that the conversation in Washington at policy can be totally divorced from things that academics who study this have known for a really long time. And I've seen the same thing in my reporting. You know, the biggest indicator of whether someone is going to come to the United States or not, you know, whether numbers are going to fluctuate is economic circumstances, you know, in home countries where people are leaving as well as ours here. There's a great demand for immigrant labor in the United States. It's often discussed as, you know, this population of wayward people who are foisted upon us when in fact, you know, Americans are like clamoring every day to hire undocumented labor but also the public safety, of course, and just the prevalence of violence and insecurity is, of course, huge for people. And it's far more significant than whatever deterrent strategy one White House or another you know, is cooking up on any given day. There is some evidence that on an individual level, you know, a specific person who's caught crossing the border illegally and is prosecuted might be less likely to do it again than somebody who isn't caught. But it's really a drop in the bucket when you look at overall trends and overall numbers compared to those other factors. And and again, that's something that I feel like is important to infuse in the reporting and, and remind people of because 
One of the things that I think the Trump administration did was make people think that, you know, immigration is up to the White House. That's just not how our, our system works. That's not how laws are made. And Trump was so obsessed with the topic that it made people think that now, you know, well, Biden, you're in office and what are you going to do to our immigration system? And you know, there are changes that White Houses can make. But I try to make the point in the story that it's kind of the absence of any movement from Congress that gives rise to these harebrained ideas that can be really, really damaging as White Houses flail, you know, because the consequences or the the situation at the border reflects on the White House, whether or not the White House can do very much to change it. Yeah. And, and many of the issues that are being discussed in the story are issues that exist in uh, Europe. They exist in Asia. This isn't like a Early in the story, people sort of talk about it as like, oh, this is a problem that we're going to solve during an administration rather than sort of a human constant that is an issue in every generation, is a like major political force, and that very frequently you see sort of like history repeating itself, you know. For you as a, a reporter, where do you go from here? Like, what do you feel like the next part of this story that you want to tell? Not necessarily this story, but the story of immigration, what what's out there that you kind of want to start working on? This isn't totally an answer to your question, but I, I do want to just mention that when you talk about what's next, you know, a lot of separated families are starting to tell their own stories and, mm. and there are oral historians who are taking those stories. And so, you know, I, I look forward to, even though it will be very difficult, you know, hearing directly about the consequences of this one policy um, So for me, I don't totally know yet, but actually, you know, a lot of people have been describing me in conversations about this piece as an immigration reporter. And and I really am supposed to theoretically write about anything at The Atlantic. That's my mandate. So I'll probably do some totally unrelated stories, too, because I'm lucky enough to have that flexibility. But like I said, I, I still feel like there's a lot of good that I can do because I understand this system that's such a pain to get up to speed on. So most people don't want to do it. And so, you know, I want to continue in that work until I feel like I've been able to make a real difference. If you were talking to a a young reporter who wanted to write about this kind of stuff, what advice do you feel like would be helpful getting your start, building sources, understanding what's actually going on? I would suggest that a young reporter just really lean into the complexity within, you know, the immigrants that you plan to write about, within also the people you plan to write about who, you know, sit in in favor of or in opposition of immigration. You know, all of these stereotypes and tropes that exist about immigrants are just completely useless. Immigrants are full people, just like anybody else. And, you know, the quickest way to lose your audience is to try to oversimplify somebody's experience or, or make any one person seem like they're perfect or like they're evil. I think it's not a way to move the conversation forward. You know, and in terms of building sources, developing expertise really helps because, you know, people who are risking their job by talking to a reporter don't want to have to kind of teach them. They want to, you know, have efficient conversations with somebody who they feel like, you know, is respectful enough of their time to study up beforehand. 
you know, and then when it comes to connecting with immigrant communities, I think it's sort of acknowledging, hey, I'm an outsider and this is an imposition and, you know, it would be very generous for you to give me any of your time. But if you don't want to, that's okay too. And, and kind of be gentle with it and recognize how scary that can be for vulnerable groups at times. Try to just lay the stakes out for people really clearly. And that usually helps. Thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Aaron. And with that, that is 500 episodes of the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to our intern, Megan Valley. Thanks to everyone at Vox Media. And most of all, thanks to everyone for listening to this show for over 10 years. We really appreciate it. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.